Hello, and welcome to Public Key, the new podcast from Chainalysis. This is your host, Ian Andrews. This week's episode was recorded live from our Washington, D.C. studio, where I was joined by Aiden Larkin, the founder and CEO of Asset Reality. Asset Reality is also a Chainalysis partner. Aiden has years of experience in the asset realization business, the process of government dealing with seized criminal property. He started his company after getting a phone call from a client asking for help in auctioning off Bitcoin. Aiden saw a gap in technology and know-how inside of government agencies dealing with cryptocurrency seizures, and he knew he could help. And after the episode, if you want to learn more about emerging financial crime typologies, head over to the show notes and grab a copy of our mid-year crypto crime report. It includes all the latest stats and trends for the first six months of 2022. On today's episode, I'm joined by my friend Aiden Larkin, CEO of Asset Reality. Aiden, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Welcome to the States as well. You're, uh, we're actually getting to do this in person, live in the Chainalysis DC office, an exciting uh, moment in the podcast history. Yeah, it's not. Uh, I'm so used to living remotely that it's actually great to be back out on the road and, and seeing people again. So I think that yeah, from I think the last time we spoke was the was Links in, in NYC. That's yeah, right. So yeah. And uh, yeah, thank you to you and Joe for the shout out on the last uh, the last episode of the second last episode of Public Key. <laughs> That's right. You know, Joe Joe and I had such a fun discussion talking about his his past uh, experiences in law enforcement. And after we stopped recording, we said, you know, we've got to get Aiden and the, uh, the Asset Reality team <laughs> on the podcast. So we made it happen yeah. sooner than I expected. Uh, took advantage of your trip here to D.C. You know, maybe start the podcast. I'd love to hear your origin story. Like, how did you find yourself in this crazy world of crypto? Uh, what was your first experience in the space? So for me, it started off, I was uh, I was working as a an asset manager. So basically, if government sees Lamborghinis and yachts and watches, I was the guy that was managing those those seizures um, and I remember getting a, uh, a call when I was sitting in an airport about to fly home um, saying oh we just had a, a bitcoin seizure you're the contractor so you kind of need to deal with this from a, a police force in the, in the south of England and I was like I had to admit that I was like well I've heard of bitcoin but I don't really know how on earth we would even start the the, the process of seizing it recovering it managing it um, and that sort of set us on this this journey of just trying to sort of demystify the whole topic and from an asset recovery perspective, think of it as it's just another asset. You know, ultimately, it's like if you seize a, if you don't need to be a gemologist to seize a diamond, you just need to know what is it, can I insure it? And that took us on a really interesting sort of journey dealing with uh, in my, my old company, um, Wilson's Auctions. I mean, you had this you know, nearly 100 year old auction house that was dealing with all these wonderful assets and all of a sudden we're now dealing with digital assets. So that was a really fun experience and we got to meet a lot of really interesting people. Um, and we did then what we found out was the first ever private sector management of seized crypto in the world. And then it led me to have the sort of cliched claim to fame that like all proceeds of crime assets, the vast majority of them end up getting sold. So I was the actual auctioneer that on the, the auction block sold Bitcoin. Um, and uh, I think and that, that was, was the first time it had ever That was been the done. first time in the world That's that someone has, sort of, what, has auctioned Bitcoin. What year was this? When? 2018, 2019. Okay. So well, I know that the market price for Bitcoin was $3,000 in Bitcoin. <laughs> That's what we had to reach for one Bitcoin. Uh, and I wish I'd have bought it all at auction, actually, but I wasn't allowed to. Um, but we, we, we did that, and that's what got me introduced to, to Jonathan and the team at, uh, at Chainalysis, because ultimately, you, know, you guys were the tool that was finding this crypto. Uh, and that's what led to the, the sort of the creation of asset reality, because we knew that governments had problems with all types of assets and all types of complex assets. Um, and uh, myself, Hugo, Nick, my co-founders, we sort of sat down and said, well, actually... 
if this is not a UK problem, it is a global problem. And if you know, companies like Chainalysis are giving people the tools to find digital assets, well then, if you're the metal detectors, who's the picks and shovels? You know, who's actually taking these assets and connecting them with a custody solution? Who's managing the cases? We all know what to do if someone seizes a yacht or someone seizes a car or a racehorse. Well, well, actually, actually I, I don't know. Yeah, this, is, this is a new territory for me. So... Uh, you know, somebody, a criminal gets arrested uh, in the process of that arrest. Presumably, you know, the, the law enforcement finds cash, yeah. weapons, drugs, but also cars, houses, the, boats. The trappings of wealth. Yeah. What, what happens yeah. to all that stuff in a, in a normal asset seizure? So what? in a normal case, they are traditionally around the world. It's pretty sort of unanimous that those types of assets are either sort of exhibits Yep. of your illicit wealth. Yep. So they're they're officially their money laundering exhibits because you can show a court, this person has no income, but they bought a $250,000 Lamborghini. So even if you're claiming that you're not the, you know, the criminal and they can't pin that on you, yeah. you still haven't got the money legitimately to earn that asset. So traditionally those assets are seized. And also if you're scamming people and you have victims, I mean that asset being seized and that asset being sold is the money that will go back to the victims of the fraud. So sometimes it's the state and society that gets the money back, and sometimes it's individual victims. But the that's the sort of asset recovery sector in, in a nutshell. Yeah. It is identifying how people have spent ill-gotten gains, grabbing those assets, and getting those assets back to the rightful owner. But different jurisdictions around the world have different lengths of time, and it's not uncommon that these cases can take five, six, seven years to go through court with appeals and all of the usual things that go on in criminal and civil cases. Even things like bankruptcies, probate. There's all of these cases where this industry exists that people have to manage assets. And we just so happen to be, to be doing that and then get involved in digital assets as yeah. just a new asset category. And I would assume that there's all sorts of issues of loss prevention, right? Like if you seize a, a fancy car or a piece of art or a house, those aren't maintenance-free assets. Yeah. They need to be maintained. You can't do anything with it, dispose of it, uh, sell it until the case is resolved. Yeah. Whether it's a bankruptcy or a criminal proceeding, like you said, that yeah, could be process. years. Yeah, and so you've got to maintain the car. Mm -hmm. Somebody's got to clean the house and make sure there's not a, a leak in the roof. The artwork has to be protected from sunlight. Yeah. Like, it can't just sit in a box in an evidence yeah. locker in a police it station. And, and that's a, but, but, but ironically, it does in many cases. Um, unfortunately, in former life, I, was, I worked in a criminal investigation directorate um, as, a, as a tax inspector. Um, and today, I, I still lecture on asset recovery and I work with the United Nations. And it's something, sadly, all around the world, governments struggle with asset recovery cases. Yeah. It's very common that an expensive car gets seized. It goes through lots of years of litigation. And like you say, all of the maintenance in the world doesn't stop the steady march of time. Right. And a Lamborghini that was a year old versus a Lamborghini that was five years old and has sat in a field is not going to be the same car it was when it was seized. Yeah. And that's just bad news all around because if you're the victim of the crime and that's your pot that you get compensated out of, you've lost 90% of the value. If the person's acquitted and not guilty, even worse then, they get the car back and sometimes they'll sue the state and the government has to make them whole. So like, all around the world, asset recovery was a big challenge before crypto came in. Yeah. And I think that everyone thought, oh my God, a bad problem is just going to get so much worse. Like We see this in hyper-focus today with the, the sanctions related to the, the war in Ukraine, where you see all of these seizures taking place with these mega yachts and super yachts. 
Um, I mean, some of those yachts, uh, our, our COO, um, uh, TJ Abernethy, who's just joined us from the US Marshals, I mean, TJ's last action in the US government was to seize the Amadea, the vessel from Fiji. And I mean, that vessel sitting still, you can Google this, an average, a vessel of that size, the maintenance cost alone, that could cost nearly a million dollars a month sitting still. So that for me is a complex asset. When you actually look at crypto assets in an asset recovery sense, they're actually the easiest, most scalable, and easy to deal with asset in the world if you know what you're doing with it. Because it doesn't rust, and I know we're gonna to touch on volatility and touch on market prices, I can see you're proud to say it, but it doesn't rust. If someone in the in the IRS or in the FBI says, we wanna seize a billion dollars of crypto, I mean, no one in the asset reality office is gonna bat an eyelid. It's just, great, let's get a QR code and let's pick the custodian you want to work with and get that asset uh, transferred. Whereas if you say, I want to seize a you new know, pedigree uh, racehorse, or I want to seize a large yacht, then people will start to panic and think, my God, there's so much liability associated with this. What are we going to do? How are we going to store it? So so crypto for us is a, it's a huge area that we can really turn the tide in asset recovery. And we're seeing these results coming in now where governments that are using analytic tools that are finding illicit crypto, like the rewards are there. It's like we're sitting on oil under our feet that's not being discovered. And we're seeing some incredible results, but it's all about the art of the possible. It sounds scary, it sounds complicated, and one of our missions at Asset Reality is to just simplify the process, work with partners, and be able to show people that actually it's not as complicated as it looks. The asset recovery piece, and I, I want to be sure that I'm not dumbing down a really complex topic. The investigations, the analytics, all of that is incredibly complex. But in terms of the recovery, management, and realization, I think we've got the easiest job. I can definitely buy into what you're saying. Like I'm imagining, you know, trying to just move a few million dollars worth of cash or gold or artwork. The complexity there just to transport it, super high. Like you need big trucks, whereas transporting cryptocurrency... Like transfer billions in seconds. Exactly. No, there's no physical weight to the digital asset for sure. But you know, when we had Joe on the podcast, he was kind of alluding to some of the challenges here. I think when you lack the technical knowledge and sophistication, he brought up a case that had never even occurred to me. And now I've I've sort of parroted this story, so I'll do it again here live. Which is you've arrested a suspect. You come to understand that they have cryptocurrency in their possession maybe a digital wallet on their phone, or you find a physical hardware wallet, and you look at that wallet, you maybe go on a block explorer like Etherscan, Mm -hmm. you can see the balance in the wallet. You're like, great, record that into evidence, put it in the in the uh, evidence uh, (laughs) ledger, you know, in a Ziploc bag, and it's sort of a (laughs) secure box. Meanwhile, the suspect bonds themselves out or is released from custody. They have the recovery phase on the wallet and they transfer the funds. And that device or asset that you have sitting in evidence? Yeah, you don't have it. It's gone. You don't have it. We we have seen this happen firsthand. We have seen literally occasions where the police are kicking in a door and someone looks like they're sending a text message. And they're not. They're sending their seed word to an accomplice deleting the message and the minute they go in the back of the police truck someone somewhere and that's a huge education piece where we're trying to do an asset reality you don't know what you don't know and these things are easy if you know how 
I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's easy to sort of repair a car if you're mechanically minded and you're trained and you know what you're doing. But to me, I look at it and I just see you know, a bunch of wires and pipes and metal and no idea. So there's certain things you know, there's certain things you don't know. And I think that's the big trick in all of this. It's about educating people to the, the risks and the pitfalls. I always sort of use the same example. I need to get some better examples. I always use the example of sort of crypto asset recoveries like a tightrope. Yeah. Really clear what you have to do. Yeah. Super simple, A to B. But if you get it wrong, that's where it's catastrophic. And, and we see this and we've seen countless examples where you know where people have and I suppose it's no different than the advent of computers and people understanding digital forensics how many people you know seize the laptop from a criminal that was logged in and they close the laptop yeah. and didn't realize by closing it they've just encrypted it and their digital forensics guys are just screaming in the background go why did you do that why did you lock the phone you know attach a charger to it go into the settings turn off the note of you know don't let the screen auto lock yeah so it's just it's just passing on that really simple knowledge. And again, it's not to, to, to make fun of someone that's got it wrong in the past. Because again, if you don't know, you don't know. You think you're doing the right thing. We've seen people shut down devices, put them in Faraday bags, like you say, yeah. thinking they're protecting the Bitcoin. And if you don't understand the mechanics of how the technology works, then yeah, you're into all sorts of trouble. And I think that back to the tightrope analogy, if you have a cash seizure and you turn up at a criminal's warehouse and something goes wrong and you're towing all the cash and some of the cash falls into the sea, well, no one really knows what you started off with and no one knows how much has floated away, but crypto is the immutable gift that keeps on giving. So what we see time and time again is that if you make a mistake in crypto asset recovery, the world and Twitter will remind you and all of the analytic companies will quickly go on to LinkedIn and go, really? Did you just see what happened? And, and then sometimes that can push people too far because that makes people sort of um, almost paralyzed by fear. And I think that's why there's so many government agencies right now and enforcement agencies and litigation lawyers and people who are perfectly capable of getting involved in asset recovery, involving crypto, are not dipping their toe because it just seems like a scary bridge too far. And that's our job is to really sort of demystify it and say yeah. that actually the tools exist, the results speak for themselves. And actually, this is easier than regular asset recovery. If yeah. we really want to move the needle, we need to double down on crypto asset recovery. We've saw it through the pandemic. We saw the explosion of online transactions, online shopping, of how people live a more cyber and digital life. You compare that against all the cost of living and looming recession. And there's just this digital bounty now and this digital footprint that it simply wasn't forecast a couple of years ago. Uh, and we're seeing this in the crypto seizure results around the world now. They're not seizing millions, they're seizing billions in value. You gave me some stats comparing asset recovery and crypto asset recovery in terms of scale before we started recording. Yeah. That blew my mind. I mean, share, share that those numbers yeah. again. It's, it's something that people sort of, I'm a big fan of sort of setting sort of perspective and, and context. My wife's actually writing a book on perspective and context. So it's a conversation we constantly we constantly talk about, uh, is talking about this sort of you know, setting the context against something you know. And when we talk about the performance in crypto asset recovery, let's pick the US. What does the US do in terms of criminal asset forfeiture for all of the forces? Um, and these are all publicly available statistics. So I think, I think in 2020 and 2021, it was in and around $2.5 billion. So that was all of the real estate, all of the art, all the typical sort of the U.S. Marshals, let, let's say the U.S. Marshals deal with the majority of sort of seized assets for lots of different government agencies. So they're, they're a good benchmark. And say, you know, two to three billion dollars is seized every year and forfeited every year. So phenomenal amount of money. But then you compare that to crypto. The IRS criminal investigation team, based on their publicly available information, based on their LinkedIn posts, they're probably across seven billion dollars 
already. And this isn't a fluke. This isn't a one-off in one particular region. We've seen reported seizures of crypto assets in the UK. One police force has seized more in crypto asset than 43 police forces combined for all categories of assets. So this is the equivalent of finding gold for the first time, finding oil for the first time, where we have this incredibly highly valuable asset category that can generate so much value. You think that money is the money that goes back into countries and pays for hospitals. That's the thing that will bring down our tax bills. This is the lifeblood of any government in any society. This is the money that will compensate victims of crime. That's where I was going to go with this, right? I don't want people to walk away and go, oh, well, this is the government seizing assets (laughs) to go back to the government. There are victims on all involved in all of these crimes. Yeah. These are people who had NFTs stolen. They were, you know, led led down a path of investing yeah. in a scheme that they thought was legitimate, and it turned out to be fake. You know, victims of non cryptocurrency crime, where the assets have been turned into cryptocurrency yeah. in an attempt to uh, evade law enforcement or, or launder the funds, right? So there's real people on the other side of this there who are benefiting it. when law enforcement's successful in in seizure and realization. Well, yeah, yeah, no, you're exactly right. Judges will make orders all around the world where if you have something like a Ponzi scheme where you know hundreds of families have been defrauded thinking they were investing in something that was genuinely a savings um, activity that would make them more money or safeguard their sort of you know, their children's financial futures uh, and it turns out it's just a big Ponzi scheme yeah. now uh, it was actually your your reports that show that overwhelmingly you know crime involving crypto it's mostly Ponzi schemes. It's yeah. just it's just a new asset category. Yeah. Um, it's still the same old-fashioned crimes. When the gold prices went up, fraudsters waved gold in everyone's faces and said, invest in gold. When yeah. crypto prices go up, they waved crypto. Now NFTs were going up, they waved crypto in everyone's face. Yeah. It's just it's, it's a new vehicle for scams. And I think that people forget that I mean, even the term asset recovery, it's about getting something back. And yes, there's times that it goes back to society in general. But what we see in many court cases around the world is in those Ponzi schemes, for example, victims are actually identified, individuals, individual losses are quantified. And in large insolvency cases, when you've got businesses that have been shut down for illegal trading or sort of financial impropriety, there's an actual creditor there who is watching the asset recovery activity, knowing that I've seen it firsthand. I've been the auctioneer selling assets when someone is in the front row, knowing that what I raise in the auction directly goes back to them because yeah. they there's actually it's, it's actually called a compensation order in court that is granted. So I think that's why it's so important, and we're so enthusiastic about the fact that we've seen the results in a wobbly, disparate system. So if we can work with other players in the sector to say, well, let's make crypto asset recovery as fluid and as effective and democratize access to as much as we can so that it's not a specialist asset recovery tool used by niche cyber departments. We want to be in a position, I mean, Snoop Dogg has an NFT range. Mike Tyson has an NFT range. So who are you going to be stopping at the side of a road? Someone who's a huge basketball fan. The regular people are buying digital assets. So when these when regular people are involved and caught up in criminality, they're they don't have to be crypto fraudsters to own an NFT. That's you know, right. regular drug dealers buy Louis Vuitton bags. Does that mean Louis Vuitton's bad and Louis Vuitton by association is guilty? Someone buying Bitcoin who is a fraudster has nothing to do necessarily yeah. that it's crypto crime. Yeah. And I think people sometimes sort of blur the two things. So from our point of view, it's just that we just see this as a wonderful land grab opportunity for society to actually get money back. Now, and like we, we, we talk about the, the, the mission behind all of this, regular asset recovery. I've been in asset recovery for 16 years. The stats are harrowing. It's less than, I think, 1% is the global statistic. Europol have covered this. Deloitte have covered this recently. On average, 1% to 2% is the total amount recovered 
out of all of the estimated available criminal proceeds that is out there. You imagine any other statistic that we said 2% is as good as we can do. Now, there will obviously be you know, bubbles around the world that sort of you know, tr- to sort of change that sort of trend line a bit. But on average, that's what the stats show. Trillions are laundered, billions are recovered. So there is this disparity. But we see that the needle is moving with crypto. So I think that that's why. And we're seeing a, I mean, I, I hate the phrase that when, when politicians always say about crime shouldn't pay and we're showing people that crime doesn't pay. Yes, it does. It pays handsomely. This is why we call the company Asset Reality, because we just want to be honest about things. Like This is the state of the, the nation that we're in right now. Asset recovery is broken. Crypto has the blueprint that we can demonstrate to people that if we can apply the same level of public and private sector collaboration that we see in crypto right now, and government agencies didn't build blockchain analytic tools. Government agencies didn't build custody platforms. So the private sector has come together, created all these collaborative tools, and we're seeing the results of it. What I'm hoping is, is that when we get finished with crypto asset recovery, I can start to turn to the 10-year-old cars that are seized, the boats, <laughs> the planes. But sort of right now, Don't go back to your roots. I, almost <laughs> harder problem. It was literally, we, when we started, we came out of the tech stars accelerator, sort of the same as, as Chainalysis. Uh, we're following in, in those footsteps. And when we literally started the company, like, it started so we had no other option it was like police weren't doing warrants they weren't going in we had this full intention of doing all of the regular assets and crypto on the side and then it just became our sole focus during the during the lockdown and, and if anything it was probably quite fortunate for us in terms of forcing us to build a remote company i mean still to this day nearly two years in over 25 guys and girls in the team have never been in the same room. The three co-founders of the company still have not been in the same room together. That's amazing. So I think it's forced us to work in an entirely different way. But to be quite honest, it matches and mimics how crypto is structured and the decentralized nature of that yeah. allows us to not try and apply old methods. It allows us to sort of try and approach things in a more flexible way. So your enthusiasm for the sector is clear. I love this story about how you know you get that phone call, hey, we've just seized some Bitcoin what do we do with it? And then you had to go figure it out. So you founded the company. Maybe tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, since that phone call back in 2018, like what does the company do now? You've got quite a few interesting customers. Yeah, for, for us, like I say, the, the mission was always around was around asset recovery. And it was actually a conversation with, with your co-founder, Jonathan Levin. We spoke to Jonathan and said, look, we, we know that crypto asset recovery is a big thing. We know that people are using the analytic tools and they're finding crypto and they're having a major problem with the management of the asset and actually dealing with it and converting that back into cash. And we know that's going to be a big problem. We know that the case management side of things is going to be a big issue because people are currently using Excel spreadsheets to reconcile a slow-moving asset recovery sector. You know, whereas the boat was in the same place that you left it sort of three months ago. And that sector wasn't very joined up and the contractors and it was all just emails. But we knew that the crypto sector was going to be very fast-moving and digital asset. The possibilities were, were really interesting and really scalable. So actually, when we um, the first bit of work we ever did at Asset Reality was actually a consultancy project for Chainalysis to say, you know, let's look at this sector and let's look and see what playbook we could come up with. Um, and it was actually credit to, to Jonathan and then one other person had said, why don't you just go to Techstars, the yeah. same accelerator that sort of that launched you guys? Um, so we went there and went, well, you accepted these guys <laughs> six years ago and they did all right. And um, what if we come behind them in their wake? And at this point, we were lucky because there were so many blockchain analytic companies you know, doing really good work in the space. And it was just that, what do you do when you find it? Our North Star was always around sort of improving asset recovery for, for everybody and getting more money back into victims and, and the pot uh, for society. But as a company, we've naturally just progressed now into effectively developing a platform that allows 
government agencies to manage their crypto assets. I mean, billions of dollars across thousands of asset classes um, are being managed on Excel spreadsheets. You know, government auditors That's don't mind, like that. That's mind-blowing and actually not that surprising. Like it's, at the same time, yeah. right? To this day, I've still spent longer in the public sector than in the private sector, so I'm, I'm very, very sympathetic. Um, there is no sales force or hub spot. You can't just go and download something on a government computer because it's a better tool. You're simply not allowed to. Yeah. Um, so from, from our point of view, it was a, how can we develop something that's low code, easy to integrate, um, that will enable people to be able to manage and, and basically replace Excel in that process. Yeah. And when we were doing that and we were looking at this as a, as a platform development, it was just a chance meeting at one of the, the crypto conferences that we bumped into the guys from Consensus and MetaMask. And we sort of got from them a real sort of passion that they wanted to do things better and have a better user journey. Because what we were seeing was we all talk about mainstream adoption and we all talk about you know, doing better as a sector to make people feel safer in crypto. And everyone talks about making crypto safer. Well, how do you actually do that? And again, I'm a big fan of perspective and context. Well, why do I feel safer when I shop online? Is it because I understand merchant services and international banking? Haven't a clue. But I understand that if it goes wrong, Visa will give me my money back. So I just trust the infrastructure. So we started to talk to um, crypto companies saying that if you can do something and make it feel more like a TradFi situation, like my mom and dad will shop online because they know there's antivirus. And I they know still that the can't computer... get my grandmother to shop <laughs> on there. Amazon. She's like, what can I buy the kids for Christmas? And I send her links on Amazon. She yeah. wants to call Amazon to order so something. What I did, but, but I agree generally. I, I got my in-laws onto you telling Alexa what to do. And, once, <laughs> and now they feel like they have a personal servant who does it for them. Um, so they don't even know they're using Amazon, but they are by Alexa. But but for us, it was that sort of, you no. Know, it was the, the sort of baby steps um, approach and thinking that actually, if, if someone like MetaMask and, and Consensus can take the lead and can say, actually, we know that there's a better way to manage user journeys. And remember, asset recovery, is a civil litigation process in many cases. If you lose your crypto assets because you were sadly socially engineered and you gave up your seed word, I hate to say it, but that's not the fault of the platform or the protocol. I mean, you've been socially engineered. A crook has went out of their way to trick you and people are angry and people want their assets back. And sometimes the hardest part of our job is having to explain to people, you'll still have to go through the traditional legal mechanisms. You'll have to get a you know, forensic report. You'll have to get a lawyer. You'll have to get a freezing order. And those things are very expensive. And the sad reality is fraudsters know that. So with crypto, they will not target someone for a million dollars. They'll target a thousand people for a thousand dollars. And they know that if they can hoover up lots of small amounts, those individuals are not going to pay. Yeah. You know, um, and start legal action. And that's why we're trying to work with the industry. And we, we are obviously involved with yourselves in the Digital Asset Task Force, for example, looking at the sector to say, how could we get to a promised land of like Visa chargeback, but for crypto? How could we get to peer-to-peer crypto insurance, for example? How do we get to all of these places? And I mean, before the iPhone, if you'd have said to someone mobile phone insurance, it was an expensive thing and no one wanted to pay for it. But now we understand that actually because Apple have an iCloud lock, then the insurable risk comes down for the underwriters. And so we sort of look at what's happening in the old sector and yeah. how do we apply it and how can we be the company that helps build the infrastructure. And, and the biggest way we're doing that right now is by managing the user journey, kind of like crypto customer service. So Web3 protocols and, and companies in DeFi, 
we will be their partner. That if you're a victim of fraud, you come to us, we use the analytic tools, and we'll try and help you on that journey to recovery, but also by being very realistic about the fact that there's no magic solution to this. You might be tracking a fraudster that has a company set up at an offshore jurisdiction. You're going to need a lawyer, an insolvency practitioner might have to get involved. But if we can at least flag the scam, if we can put it back into the blockchain analytics community, we might be able to stop the next person coming through, falling victim to the same scam. And then it means that the sector can come together and say, wouldn't it be amazing if we had preventative screening tools on outbound transactions? What if we build up such a large data set that in the same way, if you set up a new payee on your bank, you can see... Are you sure you're sending this money to to Ian? Because this doesn't look like Ian. This looks like a company that's overseas. Wouldn't it be amazing if you, as a peer-to-peer person, you could just check that address before it went out? Absolutely. I mean, these are the things that I think... It's it's all all possible. We just need to get there. My prediction uh, at the end of last year was that 2022 would be the year of investment going into wallets. And we've sort of seen this, right? A number of exchanges... I mean, Binance buying Trust Wallet. Exactly. A number of exchanges launched... Branded wallet products, Crypto.com was one, Binance was one, Coinbase just launched theirs. We've seen a bunch of independent companies launching, you know, both open source and venture backed wallet initiatives. And I think they're all chasing around the same problem, which is the user experience is far from foolproof, right? It's very easy to approve a smart contract spend. A colleague of ours here actually fell in this trap where he approved something in his MetaMask that he thought... uh, was totally innocuous mm. and it cost him about an ETH. Yeah. So relatively small yeah. loss. Yeah. He can he can sustain it. Yeah. But like that's a very sophisticated user. And yeah. so I project that back onto my non-Amazon purchasing grandparents. Yeah. Like we're, we're a wide gap from there. But it, that was why I was so excited about this MetaMask relationship yeah. that you guys have developed. Right? From our from our point of view, it, it is really exciting. And, and there's other there's other companies that we that we work with as well that we're, we're not at liberty to, to name. That um, it's the same thing. It's about improving the user journey. That's right. Because I think that the more people feel safe in this sector, the better it's going to be for for everybody involved. And I think that the industry could do more to help itself. There's a lot of the big exchanges out there that I think that. I mean, why do we have Amex and Visa charge back? That's an operating cost for those merchants. Should we see something like that? Should there be a, a, a middle ground? I mean, if, if I'm socially engineered, I have you no know, capital one will will cover if I have identity theft. Yeah. If someone you know, uses in a different continent, you know, buys an iPad with my credit card tomorrow, I don't have a whole argument and a fight with them. Whereas if you look at anybody who's been a victim of any crypto-related fraud, what their experience has been like with billion-dollar US-registered crypto companies, you're sort of thinking they could do better. Yeah. And I think that from our point of view, we're, we'd rather work with people than against people. Absolutely. And we would rather, but we also know that we're very firmly sort of rooting for the victim. Some of the companies are doing exceptional. I think it's wonderful that MetaMask and others have sort of taken that lead to say, well, look, let's, let's at least start sowing the seeds of a better user journey. Because the more people can say that, yeah, I had a bad, uh, no, I had a near miss or something, went wrong but it was quickly resolved i also know it was my fault and i was kind of socially engineered and i mean more education more awareness that's where we'll see these things starting to sort of move away and then if that's also sort of contrasted by more aggressive recovery action against the really bad actors the really really bad illicit um addresses if we're seeing a combination of those i think that'll do more for mainstream adoption yeah. than a crypto rally yeah. do. If people just feel safer with crypto, that'll give us the rewards that we all want in the sector in terms of um, an uplift of users than the next latest sort of bull and bear market. Totally agree. I think it's also interesting your company is working not just with the technology providers, but you're also doing some pretty extensive work 
with governments around the yeah. world. Like, talk a little bit about the the work Asset Reality is doing with the Seychelles government. Yeah, so Seychelles and a lot of the the, the traditional sort of offshore jurisdictions as well, they're in a really unique position um, because if you imagine as asset reality we're we're coming to the market as a as a fintech startup we have this platform that can manage crypto seizures and it all sounds great but if you're starting at a zero point where you don't have huge funded you know law enforcement teams you don't have blockchain analytic tools you don't have investigation tools and then you've also got this really unique sort of paradox where you need the GDP, you need to be open for business, you need the economic opportunities that blockchain companies bring, but you also don't want to be someone else's cautionary tale and have lots of crypto activity in your jurisdiction and then get criticized by FATF or go on the dreaded gray list or some sort of negative evaluation because you're not doing enough. So I think that because we have the experience in our team of being ex-law enforcement, of helping countries with their um, their mutual evaluation assessments, we get a really good read on what's possible. And I think people like our pragmatism that we're not going to go into some jurisdiction that has you know, a grand team of 10 people in their FIU and say, you must do all of these extraordinary things. We would rather sit with the regulator in between and say, look, what's realistic and practical that you can do? And what are the things that actually you're not doing as good as you could? And there's tools out there that can do that for you. Yeah. So we sort of sit in the middle and Seychelles is a good example. It's in the public domain where you know, they've been incredibly sort of open with us saying that, okay, we've got all this crypto activity on the, on the island, on the jurisdiction. We want good crypto companies to be here. We want to stop bad actors you know, taking advantage. And that's, that's a fantastic position to be in. I'm from the UK. The UK is the global money laundering no-hub in the world and has all the ability to shut it down and the you know, the powers that be don't. And I, I think I always find this hilarious that I get to travel all around the world as a, as a UNODC consultant and I, I get to talk to people about what they should do in their jurisdiction being from the UK. Whereas frankly, we need all of the consultants to come to the UK. Oliver Bellow's Butler to the World is one of the best books you'll ever read on sort of on the UK's position in, in money laundering and enabling money laundering. So I think that companies like, or sorry, countries like Seychelles you know, proactively saying, well, what can we do to improve this? And, and again, let's be very clear, go back to the very first conversation we had. There is billions of dollars going through these jurisdictions. Yeah. That money could be forfeited if it's illicit. And that money could be building hospitals, could be building infrastructure, could be building yeah. roads. So I think now we're seeing some of the smallest jurisdictions in the world popping up. One of my next projects is involved is in Cook Islands and Palau, because Palau was the home of the famous Rai coins, which sort of cryptocurrency is constantly sort of compared to. And again, if you want to set up a crypto crypto company in an offshore jurisdiction, you're doing it from a laptop. You don't even yeah. have to go. So it doesn't matter if yeah. it's a rock in the middle of the ocean somewhere in the Pacific. That could be the hub of the next multi-billion dollar crypto exchange. So I, I again, I'm very empathetic to countries that are trying to get the balance right. But there's been enough examples of countries that haven't done enough. And I think that's why we're being deployed uh, around the world now. Because people know that we have a playbook that we can roll out and we can say, this is how you become compliant. This is how you generate. Um, asset recovery returns that is good for the country it creates a good virtuous cycle and um, that gets money in that funds more law enforcement funds and um, better compensation for victims and then it also helps the reputation of crypto as a whole and helps the sector because it removes a lot of the hiding places for the bad actors but it's like we talked about before this podcast let's not kid ourselves in the sense of the scale of the issue no crypto is not the issue current estimate is that two trillion dollars is laundered in fiat every single year the art section and luxury goods market have been named on every money laundering assessment around the world and has been for the last decade. 
and sanctions evasions were alive and well in the art industry long before crypto came along. So I think that I'm not going to sit here and say asset reality is a panacea and we're going to fix crypto, we're going to fix asset recovery. But I think with crypto, all of the tools are there that we can genuinely make a real dent. And we'll not be sitting here in five years' time going, oh, that's just the way it is. Because that, that's the current reaction to global money laundering. It's just, eh, no, there's nothing we can do about it. It's too big. It's too unstoppable. I think with crypto, it's the, the, the cheesy Spider-Man quote, with great, the, with great power becomes great responsibility. I think that because all of the component parts are there to stop things before they become a runaway train, that's why we're sort of seeing that if we can play our small part in the ecosystem and work with partners like yourselves and say, well, how can we join the dots and make this interpretable and make this, can we actually deploy all of this knowledge in bite-sized educational sort of ways that people can act on it, then we'll be, we'll be doing our job. It, it's uh, amazingly good point to end the podcast on is the opportunity exists here to do things differently than have been done before, make a big impact on the world. They are really possible. That's, That's right. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. No, thank you for the invitation. Chat. It was good fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Public Key. We're releasing new episodes weekly. So if you liked what you heard, then don't forget, subscribe, review, and of course, share with your friends. Did this crypto seizure episode pique your interest? Recent reports from Bloomberg News highlight that the U.S. Marshals Service held 22 cryptocurrencies valued at $919 million in December of 2021. In February of 2022, the U.S. made its largest financial seizure ever, about $3.6 billion in Bitcoin stolen during a 2016 hack of a well-known international cryptocurrency exchange. And cryptocurrencies made up over 90% of the assets confiscated by the Internal Revenue Service Criminal Investigation Division in the fiscal year that ended September 30th, 2021. Last thing before you go, if you're listening, then you probably liked learning about crypto. Have you signed up for Chainalysis Academy yet? If not, grab the link in the show notes and get your free account and start your journey today.